So, um, this morning, I am changing things up a bit. Uh, we've been marketing the, you know, major characters of uh, the nativity, and uh, I was supposed to speak about the shepherds this morning, but to be honest with you, as I got into that this week, um, I wrestled with, with that as opposed to doing what I'm going to do this morning, and so this is the one that really came together, and to be honest with you, I just had a great time just preparing this particular message. Not that I have an awful time preparing a message, but but this was just seemed to be more fulfilling. And so uh, I'm going to be speaking today on <coughs> the four dreams of Joseph. Did you know that Joseph had four dreams? He had four dreams. He did not have two. He had four dreams. And uh, and those, those dreams uh, reveal a lot about Joseph's character and who he is as a man. It's interesting, isn't it? especially in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> which is very Jewish. Matthew was a Jew and wrote the, that particular gospel with uh, a lot of Jewish angles to it. Uh, so, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew never writes or never says the kingdom of God. So you'll, you'll hear about the kingdom of God in Mark. You'll hear about the kingdom of God in Luke. You will not hear about the kingdom of God in Matthew because he says the kingdom of heaven. Because Jews believe that God was too holy to say. And so, keeping with that tradition, Matthew would say the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> in like manner, uh, Matthew probably puts more emphasis on the, the male end of things when it comes to male characters in the scripture than, say, what Luke would. And so the fact that, that, um, that Matthew does what he does, uh, where he emphasizes seemingly Mary over Joseph, is kind of a unique thing about Matthew. And uh, so I'm going to get into that uh, a little bit, because what I want you to know is I want you to know more about Joseph this morning as a, as a major character in the nativity story <clears throat> than maybe you've ever heard before. So when we look then at the four dreams of uh, Joseph, let's just sort of do the background. Um, and interestingly enough, there's very little biblical background about Joseph. So uh, Matthew talks about Joseph more than anybody else. Then Luke then John, and in Mark, you won't find any references to Joseph at all. So if you're looking to get this really detailed, uh, overarching composite of who Joseph is, you only have this. And then after that, you have to fill in the blanks about what would have been typical for a guy like Joseph at that time, in that place, in that culture. And so that's what I will be doing this morning. And so I'm, tr I'm going to try and cover the four W's behind Joseph's story. Who is Joseph? What are Joseph's circumstances? Where is Joseph? Because that's very important. Actually, Joseph was all over the place. And why is Joseph important? <clears throat> now, the first thing I want to mention to you is when you read in the first chapter of Matthew, you'll read the genealogy. 
So the genealogy is the sort of the ancestral account of how we went from the beginning of, uh, you know, the beginning of whenever we began through all the people that finally ended up with Jesus in terms of that family lineage, right? Here's the interesting thing, that when Joseph gets to... Um, uh, to, I'm sorry, when, when Matthew gets to Joseph, he breaks from that and he includes Mary as the mother of Jesus, Jesus and Joseph as the father of Jesus. In no other place does a woman figure in the genealogy of Matthew other than when, when Mary is included. And so there's just this emphasis on Mary and there doesn't seem to be this real emphasis on Joseph. But there's more there than what you think there might be. And so we're going to try and create for you this morning Joseph's profile within the biblical text and what we can safely assume Joseph might have been like, culturally speaking. So what does the biblical text have to say about Joseph? What can we deduce from that? How can that be helpful to us in our understanding of the, the nativity story? How can that be helpful to us in terms of how we live our faith out? What kind of man was Joseph? And does it speak to the kind of man or woman that we should be as well? And then from that, where Joseph lived and how Joseph lived, what would be appropriate that we could safely assume about Joseph as well? And so it's a matter of connecting the dots. So I'm going to help try and help connect the dots this morning. So anyway, you all know this, that Joseph was a direct descendant of King David. And this is important because it was, it was predicted 1,000 years before the birth of Christ that there would be this Messiah. Now, you know how oftentimes I like to talk about Isaiah and how Isaiah was written 600 years before the birth of Christ. And then you read something like Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, or Isaiah 9. And you think, wow, man, that's just really descriptive of who Jesus is 600 years before the birth of Christ. Well, the Davidic covenant, which describes the Messiah, was written about 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, and it is fulfilled in the lives of Joseph and Mary, both of whom were descendants of David. A thousand years. It's like somebody saying something, you know, back in 1000 AD that was going to happen today. I mean, it seems like such a long, long time ago. How could that be possible? But I read it last week, and it bears worth reading again today. This is the Davidic covenant as found in 2 Samuel and 2 Chronicles. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, he says to David, I will raise, you, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever." These words were never written about an Israelite king ever before. Not before and not after. These words were never written. These words are very peculiar, very specific, very unique. 
as they describe this future Messiah, this future king. Verse 13, I will be to him a father. This is God saying, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. He's talking about King Saul. But I will confirm him in my house. And in my, so he's not talking about a house that you live in. He's talking about his family. I will confirm him in my, my house, my family, and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. This is the Messianic covenant. So Yahweh is saying to David, from you, I will raise up a man, a king who will be like this. And so it is fulfilled through Joseph and Mary as they are the parents of Jesus himself. So what else do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that he was raised and educated in Judaism. This was very common. Every Jewish boy was deeply, deeply steeped in the Jewish faith. Deeply steeped. For centuries, education was based on the home and was centered around the religious tradition, the Torah, and passing on the family trade. So that was part of what took place in the family as well. Education began with learning biblical Hebrew, then reading and memorizing large portions of the scriptures. So it might, it might be interesting to know then, it might be interesting to think about. So when Gabriel the angel appeared before Mary, or when the angel of the Lord appeared before Joseph and would say the things that they would say, their extensive education in the Torah, particularly as it related to the future Messiah, might have been very informative for them. So it wasn't like, all this stuff was new or strange or whatever entirely. They would have heard about these kinds of things in their education from the time they were tiny until they became adults. So it was with Joseph. Oftentimes, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. I was always mystified by this. They always, and it's kind of a creepy thing, they always like portray Joseph as this older guy who was going to marry this younger girl. I mean, like really younger girl, right? And it, it probably began, um, I mean, I guess that perception began in a lot of the classical art that was done centuries ago. So, for example, here's this painting uh, by um, Guido Reni. That's Joseph. And, you know, if you, if you take that Joseph and you put him with like a 14 or 15-year-old girl, it just looks creepy, you know. But this image of Joseph uh, has, has been a, a regular part of how we see him. So in almost everything that you see, in almost any painting or film or whatever, you see Joseph and he's never, hardly ever younger than maybe 30 years of age. He's got a full beard. He looks like he's been around for a while. Um, and that's really not who Joseph was. 
Joseph was probably looked like this. And even that might be a little bit too old for Joseph in terms of what he may have looked like when he married Mary. So, um, so Joseph was probably about 17 or 18 years of age. And I'll, I'll share more with, about that in just a minute. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but here's an interesting thing about a 17 or 18-year-old man, though. Um, <clears throat> he was described as a just man, righteous. Now, this word appears 79 times throughout the Bible. It's a very powerful word. It's a word that's not used lightly. It's a word that's used only for those seminal figures, those figures that are really significant, really important. So any of the righteous people that you read about in the Old and New Testament, this word, uh, it's, uh, it's pronounced dikaios, uh, it's kind of hard to pronounce, but that word is a word that's a very, very important, even theologically a very important word throughout the scriptures. Joseph is described as that at age 17 or 18. Now, how many 18-year-olds do you know that you could say, boy, that guy's just righteous? You know, he is. Uh, anybody here know anyone like that, huh? I mean, you, when you're 17 or 18, you could be a nice person, but you have issues, you know, you're still working through largely, right? And so, uh, no disrespect to any 17 or 18 year olds. So, we, we get that. We went through it. We know what it's like. And Rocky's still going through it. If you don't believe him, just ask Bonnie. So, so here's the meaning it means to be proper, equitable, equitable, innocent, holy, virtuous. Practicing even-handed justice. And so when we read in a little bit about how Joseph handled his situation with Mary when she was pregnant, this idea of even-handed justice becomes very clear. The idea of virtue is very obvious. Now, when Joseph was betrothed to Mary... There was this understanding in, in every Jewish boy what the role of a husband and father in the Judaistic tradition would be like. That you would carry on your family's honor, legacy, and tradition. That was huge. I mean, <clears throat> one of the reasons why children were em emphasized obedience so much was because it was a child's responsibility to honor their family wherever they went. So anything that they said or did or participated, if it brought dishonor to the family, it would, I mean, it, it was a big deal. And oftentimes it was a big deal because if your family was dishonored, it may impact that family's ability to make a living. If you become, if you are ridiculed as a family, if no one has respect or can trust you as a family, then your ability to do business by virtue of your word is in severe doubt. 
Now, like nowadays, I mean, back then they would buy a house according to their word. I promise you I will pay you this much, and that's how much I'll pay you, and I'll pay you on this date. Okay, great. Well, we'll count on it. You buy a house today, and you're signing papers that are about this tall because nobody trusts your word. So you had to bring honor to your family. You had to provide for your family. The Apostle Paul said that if a man does not provide for his family, he is worse than an unbeliever. The idea of being a man and not providing for your family was anathema. I mean, there was, there was, no, there was very little mercy for people like that. And that you had to protect your family. The role of a man was to protect his family. And so you'll see a lot of that as we get into Joseph uh, in a few minutes. You'll see this idea of how he provided and his, his commitment to protecting them. And then, of course, if you lived in a community as a young man or as a man, you were to support and bring honor to your community. So not only could you dishonor your family through your actions, you could dishonor your community. So, for example, and I've talked about this before, um, <clears throat> for centuries we talked about how Jesus, when he was born, there was no place for him in the inn. And so <clears throat> um, we pictured like a hotel and it was full of people and nobody would give up a room for this pregnant woman and her husband uh, who was about and she was about to give birth. Um, but that's really not what happened because in any community back then, if there was a woman who was pregnant and someone did not provide hospitality in that community, um, that community would become a laughingstock and a pariah to all of the surrounding communities. It just would. Um, so uh, what when they said that there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn, they were talking about the guest room, the cataluma. Where they stayed was the, uh, as opposed to the Padokion. The Padokion was an actual inn or hotel. The Cataluma was a guest room at a person's house. There was no room in the guest room. And so that's why Mary and Joseph uh, stayed in the, the adjoining stable of the house itself, right? But I'm just saying to you that, that bringing honor to the community was huge. So for Joseph, for any man in Judaism, these were expectations and requirements. So Joseph was born in Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth is an insignificant town whose population is somewhere around between 400 to 1,200. We're not sure. But it's a small town. So, and we all, we all know little towns like that around here where they're just tiny little villages um, up to uh, a smaller town of 1,200 people. But it was relatively small. It was located in a rural and remote region of Israel, up in uh, the province of Galilee. Nazareth was very difficult to access because there was this steep off-road climb that nobody wanted to go to. 
There were no natural resources, inadequate soil, and weak springs. It just wasn't the best place to live. It had a poor reputation. So while in Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, which is 80 miles away from Nazareth. So they're 80 miles away from Nazareth. Jesus is recruiting his disciples. And um, Philip is inviting his brother, Nathaniel, to come see Jesus. And he says, Jesus is from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? So it had this terrible reputation 80 miles away. That's probably like three or 400 miles away today. So if I said to you, so-and-so came out of certain sections of Pittsburgh, you might be thinking, hmm, really? Could anything good come out of that part of it? We would think that, right? It was very similar in that regard. So Joseph was born and grew up in this place, Nazareth, which was probably a pretty challenging place to live in. Joseph was the, early, was the earthly father of not only Jesus, but later Jesus' siblings. So some of you may not be aware that Jesus had siblings. We read about this in Matthew 13. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And not, are not all his sisters with us? So we know that, G, that Joseph had at least four additional brothers and at least two daughters, and Jesus or Jesus had two sisters, stepsisters, stepbrothers. But we know that according to the text here. It's also referenced to a lesser degree, in the book of Acts. So, interestingly, later on, there is no mention of Joseph after Jesus began his ministry. Now, that's either because Joseph had died by that time, 30 years later. So, in other words, once Jesus began his ministry at age 30, there's no longer any mention of Joseph at all. And we don't know what happened to Joseph. He could have died. So Joseph was a carpenter. Nazareth was a tiny little town. It probably was not big enough to support a carpentry business. So carpenters then, like many carpenters today, could be itinerant. They traveled. And they went where the work was. So they would leave their family... Uh, for days or weeks, and then they would come back. They would work, make some money, and then they would come back. So Joseph could have well have been an itinerant carpenter. And what do you know about most trades back then? Do you think that OSHA was in place back then? No. There was no such thing as OSHA back then, right? And so... People who work the trades oftentimes engage in pretty dangerous behavior. So it could could very well be that Joseph died uh, while he was doing carpentry work. He died while he was traveling back and forth between. 
He could have died from disease, we don't know, or he could have just been absent at that time and was not mentioned when Jesus began his ministry. So we read here uh, then in Mark, then he went, this is, this is Jesus, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could, uh, so they could not even eat. So there, Jesus is in Nazareth, this crowd is gathered, they're all around the house, and we read here that in Nazareth, verse 21, and when his family heard that Jesus was there, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jesus had started his ministry. <clears throat> he was becoming quite popular. Right after this, he talked about, um, if I recall correctly, uh, he, he, he said some pretty provocative things about the Pharisees. And so during the course, remember how when the shepherds and the, and the magi come and say all these things about Jesus, Mary pondered them in her heart, these, these significant things, right? Well, apparently over the course of those 30 years, Mary pondered less. And she didn't understand exactly what was happening with Joseph. And I mean, Jesus. And so she shows up uh, because Jesus is teaching. And they're concerned because of what Jesus is saying. But not only that, probably because there are people saying things about Jesus that isn't accurate. And so they're concerned for him and what might happen to him, his reputation and their honor. Right? So verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and were st and standing outside, they sent to him and he called them. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And so um, that, that takes us into a whole different course. But the point is, is that Jesus references his mother and his brothers, as does Mark, and, um, and what is going on with him at the time. Another interesting thing about Joseph, there is no mention of Joseph at the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's probably pretty, it's probably true that something happened to Joseph by that time. So we read here in the Gospel of John, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his brother, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So if Joseph had been alive, Jesus probably would not have uttered these words. So Joseph was probably gone by this time or before this time. Now, <clears throat> to set the stage again about what is happening with Mary and Joseph, because we're going to get into this, this, uh, these four dreams that Joseph had, uh, we're going to come to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I'm sorry, this is from Luke, uh, Luke chapter 2. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. But Mary said to the angel, 
how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And so Mary's response is, uh, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So among the most profound words given what was being asked of Mary in the whole of the New Testament. So that's setting the stage. So now we come to these four dreams of Joseph and his encounter with the angel of the Lord in those dreams. Likely, so um, it's so Matthew records the angel of the Lord. He does not use the term or the word Gabriel, but we know in all of the other messianic texts where an angel appears, that angel is named Gabriel. So it would not be inappropriate to assume that this angel of the Lord appearing to Matthew or to Joseph is also Gabriel. Just probably Gabriel speaking to him, right? And so um, <clears throat> as we get to these dreams, then it's important to understand a few things. In a different way, but almost no less significant, Joseph's life was also hijacked by God's sovereignty and his providence. So Mary's life was hijacked by God in terms of his sovereignty and providence in her life. But Joseph's was too, significantly, in a different way, almost as, almost as acutely as Mary's, but not quite. I mean, when we come to Joseph's nature and character, it kind of reveals this. Here's a man who's exceptionally mature at age 18, who is known to be a righteous man, who is compassionate and gracious, as we are about to hear, who is steadfastly obedient to God in terms of how he responds to all of those dreams that he is given by Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, that he is courageous. He is a courageous man. You say, well, how's that? He's courageous because when he hears about Mary being pregnant, he's living in this tiny little, probably ultra-conservative community called Nazareth. Now, what do you think the people in that community are going to say or think about Joseph or Mary? And if it's his job to bring honor to that community... But Mary, his betrothed, ends up pregnant. Clearly, um, what he does is that he chooses to take the high road about how he treats her, as opposed to how many people might think she ought to be treated. He decides to put her away quietly, not to make a big scene to deal with her compassionately and graciously. That's not what most of the community probably would have said that he should have done. He was courageous because he was on Herod the Great's most wanted list. So when Jesus was born 
And the Magi went to Herod and said, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Um, and, and, and Herod was perplexed, as was all of Jerusalem. But they searched the scriptures, and the scripture said, well, the Messiah, the king, is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And so the Magi went to Bethlehem. And he told them, when you find him, come back and tell me that you found him so that I too can go worship him. When in reality, what he wanted to do was go and kill them. And so from that point on, from the birth of Jesus, it was, Ma it was Herod's intent to murder Jesus. He was so resolute about it that he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem where there was what was called the slaughter of the innocents. Where children up to, all children up to two years of age were slaughtered by Herod's soldiers. Now, Herod, in his day and his time, was considered to be one of the most wicked and evil despots in ancient history at the time. Herod was married ten times. Did you know that? He murdered his first wife, Marianne I. Oddly enough, there was a Marianne II that came along not too much later. I think I'd change my name. He murdered three of his sons at different times, believing that they were trying to usurp his throne. He was such a vile character that even Caesar Augustus said, it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be his sons. Now, that doesn't mean that Herod wasn't without some talent because he was called Herod the Great for all of the great architectural work that he did, all the great building projects that he completed. But he was that guy. And Joseph had to know that he was that guy. And he did not cave. He spent the rest of his life providing and protecting Jesus in whatever way he could against a man who was determined to kill his son. Now, the other way that, that, uh, that Joseph was, was courageous is, uh, the, I, I'll, I'll show you in a few minutes, but you can't believe how many times they had to travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem to, to Egypt. And traveling back then, uh, was dangerous. Anytime you went on the road, you risked, you had a high chance of being accosted by bandits, by people who would murder you for your goods. So anytime the angel of the Lord said, hey, I want you to get up and go to this place, it involved danger, real danger. But Joseph did it anyway. And so he was dedicated as a man, highly dedicated as a man to his faith and to his family. So now we come to dream number one. This is Matthew 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, especially verses 20 through 23. The angel of the Lord commands Joseph to take his betrothed and pregnant Mary as his wife and to call him and to call the son that they're about to have, to call him Jesus. So in this dream, 
as we read it, he is commanded to go ahead and marry or wed Mary and to take her as his wife. Now, when you read about Zechariah and the, and the angel of the Lord Gabriel appears before Zechariah in the temple and he says, hey, you're going to have a son and I want you to call him John. Zechariah argues with Gabriel. Well, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife's old. It's impossible. How can, how? So Zechariah, who's a high priest, who, who's the top of his, supposedly at the top of his profession, argues with the angel Gabriel about what is about to happen in his family. And so, uh, but Joseph doesn't do any of that. He has this dream. The angel of the Lord appears to him. And he says, I want you to go ahead and wed Mary, your betrothed. Now, there were enormous social, cultural, and religious stigma to marry a betrothed woman who was already pregnant. Enormous. And so, um, so all of that had to be factored in as Joseph considered that. Consider also that in a betrothal and a marriage, that the fathers usually arranged the marriage. So Mary, who was between ages 12 and 14, and Joseph, who was probably between ages 17 and 18, um, married Mary at the time. And we know that 18 was the, the ideal age for males be, because we can read here in, there's this ancient literature, uh, comes out of the Mishnah where uh, a a, uh, a teacher writes, at 18, a man is fit for the bridal chamber. That would have been a part of the oral tradition. That's kind of how we know that. So before going further, let's try to get inside the mind of Joseph as he's being betrothed, because this is how his life was changed. It was altered. It was, in one sense, hijacked. So when Joseph gets betrothed, he wants to enter in and establish himself in a household, as every young Jewish man would. He's about to have the male headship transfer from her father to him, which is a huge thing and very significant. Joseph's parents probably did business, worshipped, and even socialized with each other. So you can imagine, can't you? Mary gets pregnant comes to Joseph and says, hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. Uh, I know our parents arranged this. I know they played cards together and you know, all that kind of stuff, but, you know, I don't know what we're going to do here. You can hear Mary's parents, right, to Joseph and her parents. Your son took advantage of my daughter. And you can hear, you can just hear, can't you, well, your daughter lured my son. That probably would have been maybe part of the conversation. Can you imagine Joseph's childhood friends? Hey, Joseph, what's up? I know, you, I know you're betrothed. You're basically almost married to Mary, but how did she get pregnant? Did she cheat on you? Did you give in? 
What happened? You think all that wasn't part of the conversation back then? It absolutely was. Joseph, thought, I thought you were a good guy. I thought Mary was a good girl. Or, you know, Joseph, I know you said you didn't do anything, but aren't you, aren't you marrying damaged goods here? I mean, how do we know there was only one? She just got caught this time. Do you think that wasn't part of the conversation back then? Can you imagine Joseph facing that, you know, just taking that on and facing it down? And what was his response? That he would divorce her quietly because he did not want to subject her to shame, to disgrace, and to embarrassment. Now, he could have, right, really protested. He could have said, look, I need to look good here, so I'm going to be outraged. Because I don't want anybody to think I had anything to do with this. But that's not what he did. He let people think what they wanted to think. And he did what was righteous, or was willing to do what was righteous and what was good. All of that, of course, impacts Joseph, who's probably your average, normal, healthy, every 18-year-old male who was looking forward to getting married. So this hijacking of God in his life impacted all of that as well too. But I think Joseph's response when the angel of the Lord spoke to him in the dream was like Mary's. Although it isn't said, the fact that he didn't argue, he didn't debate, he didn't question, he just did what the angel of the Lord told him. He went ahead and wed Mary. He trusted what the angel of the Lord said. So I think Joseph's mindset and heart was, I am the Lord's servant, may be to you, be to me as you have said. I think that he and Mary were of the same soul, the same mind, the same spirit in this way, because there's no evidence that, to counter that. There's absolutely zero evidence in anything that we read about Joseph that would indicate that he had a heart, anything other than what Mary's heart was. He was a remarkable young man. So Joseph's response, we read in Matthew 119, which was read earlier. We read this in uh, where, where Matthew records, and her husband Joseph being a just uh, Diakios man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly. We read that in the ESV. It's always helpful to read different versions on texts like this. And the New American Standard, it says, and her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man. So I think the word righteous is the better word here. I think the word just is too obscure. I don't think it gets to the whole of what is going on here. And so I think the English word righteous is the better word. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace 
Again, disgrace is a more powerful word than shame. So shame has a more personal uh, kind of implication, right? So I feel shame. When you say I have been disgraced, it means that other people are aware as well. So I think the word disgrace is probably a better word in the New American Standard Bible. And he planned to send, that is to release or dismiss, that word even means forgive her away secretly. He was not going to make her um, an example. He was not going to leverage her to prove his innocence. He was just going to take care of it quietly so she would not be ashamed. And I also might want to say, too, that maybe a little bit of what was going on is that in that culture, women didn't always have the option to refuse. And so maybe initially in Joseph's mind, the reason why she got pregnant was because somebody really did take advantage of this young girl over whom she had no power, which is why, in part, he may have taken the angle that he took to divorce her quietly and not to bring her to disgrace. Dream number two, the angel of the Lord commands Joseph to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because of Herod's desire to kill Jesus. They probably went to a city called Alexandria, which is a major city, boasted at the time the world's largest library was really significant uh, later on in, uh, in uh, Roman history. It was a major philosophical center for centuries and had a very large Jewish community there. So Joseph went to Alexandria to escape Herod to get beyond his reach. And then it says, and remain there until I tell you. Now, um, this dream that Joseph had on, that t- on the timeline would have looked like this. There was the birth of Jesus. And that's angels, not angles. Sorry about that. The birth of Jesus. The visit from the shepherds would have already taken place. Jesus' circumcision after eight days would have already taken place. Jesus' dedication at the temple, they're still in Bethlehem here. So they leave Bethlehem, go six miles. Jesus is dedicated, they go back to Bethlehem. So Jesus' dedication at the temple had already taken place. And by the way, this is all very carefully outlined. This demonstrates the, 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 the significance of their commitment to Judaism by doing all of these things. The circumcision on the eighth day, the dedication on day 40 in that manner. The visit from the Magi would have taken place. They were probably living in Bethlehem, and then, but it happened before the slaughter of the innocents that we read in Matthew 2. That's when this dream took place. After all of those things and before the slaughter of the innocents. Dream number three, the angel of the Lord commands Joseph to rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel 
for those who sought the child's life are dead. So they're in Egypt, probably Alexandria. The angel of the Lord appears. Gabriel says to Joseph, it's time to go back now. And so Joseph uh, gets everybody ready and he heads back. And his intent, it, it appears, is to go back to Bethlehem. Why go back to Bethlehem? Because Nazareth is this tiny little town of between 200 and 1,200 people. There's just not much going on there economically, not much that they can do. And so Bethlehem was a better place. And so he goes to Bethlehem. But then uh, we have dream number four. And before we get to that, I just want to show you what I, what this, what I call the nativity map. I, I spent some time on this so that you can understand the distance of things. So Nazareth is that lower star. I'm sorry, is that upper star. Jerusalem is right there by that lower star, the red one. Bethlehem is by the sun, that purple sun there to the left. Judea is that section uh, where, so you see where the little, uh, the green uh, triangle is, that's the province of Judea. Galilee is above that, that's the province of Galilee. The distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem is 80 miles. They would walk that. They wouldn't drive, wouldn't ride, they would walk that. And the distance uh, between Jerusalem and Nazareth is 64 miles. So um, when you see that map, then you understand that um, uh, there was a lot of traveling to do. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. But when Joseph comes back from Egypt, which would have been to the left of that map, and wants to settle in Bethlehem, uh, because of some other things going on in, in dream number four, he goes up to Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, which is on the, in a totally different province of a different king. So it's all what used to be Jerusalem. But he goes to a very remote regional place where they, it was obscure, back to Nazareth, where they could not be found. So it served a very... So just real quick, in terms of Joseph, Mary, and, and Jesus' travels... Between the census and the birth, they left Nazareth and went to Bethlehem 80 miles. Then Jesus had to get circumcised. That was from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. That was, that was six miles. And then back. Then Jesus' dedication from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, which was six miles, and then, returned six, uh, and then they returned to Bethlehem, which was six miles. Then they went Bethlehem to Egypt, which is 40 miles. And then Egypt to Bethlehem, which is another 40 miles and then Bethlehem to Nazareth, which is 80 miles. Every one of those travels, every one of those trips involved danger. Every one of them. Every one of them, they could have lost their life. Every one of them, they could have been injured. Every one of them. But Joseph did with the angel of the Lord. There were no protests like, I just, I just, I just did this. Do I have to do it again? There was nothing like that. Do you know how dangerous this is, Gabriel? There was nothing like that. Joseph simply did what he was told to do without any argument, any debate. 
like our teenagers that we have at home. So, dream number four. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, that is Bethlehem, because he's coming back from Egypt. As he's coming back from Egypt, he has this fourth dream. The angel did not want him to go to Bethlehem. The angel wanted him to go to Nazareth. And so when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, who had just died, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went up and lived in a city called Nazareth. He didn't say to Gabriel, do you know how much better it would be for me and us if we lived in Bethlehem? The economic, economic opportunities. How, how, I mean, just do you understand that you're sending me to Nazareth and I'm going to have to work harder and longer? I'm going to have to walk further. Do you understand that? He didn't. None of that happened. He simply did what he was told. Now, Archelaus was, just, just real quick, the reason why in this map I'm going to show you here, the reason why that's important is Archelaus, the uh, tetrarch, was the son of Herod. Another son of Herod was Herod Antipas. Another son of Herod was Philip the Tetrarch. When Herod died, his kingdom was broken up into four parts. Salome was his sister. So his sister ruled that little pink area. Philip ruled that, that upper brown area. Herod Antipas ruled those two purplish areas. And Archelaus the Tetrarch married uh, uh, ruled the blue area, the largest portion. When Herod died, Archelaus went to see Caesar Augustus, and he expected to be crowned king over that whole thing. But Caesar Augustus wasn't too taken with him and said, look, you can work and demonstrate to me that you're worthy of that, but right now I'm going to make you a tetrarch. Do you know what tetrarch means? Ruler of a quarter. Ruler of a quarter. Archelaus had all the ambition of his father, none of the skill or talent. And so after not too many years, Caesar Augustus removed him and, um, and uh, banished him to, I think, Cyprus. And it was after that happened that it became safe for Jesus to travel throughout that entire region. So... All that to say that Joseph was this guy who simply obeyed. Joseph was a guy who understood that what God wanted him to do was far greater than any of his own personal desires or wants. I think Joseph was, it was, was uh, highly motivated that God would choose him to do this great work with his only one and only son. So as I studied, you know, Joseph in this way, it seems to me that if you read between the lines and you see what he accomplished with his life and how readily and how faithfully and how devotedly he conducted himself and in in, in, in how he provided for both Jesus and Mary, and how he protected them the way that he did. Joseph is a man that we could imitate and replicate in our own life. God didn't choose Joseph 
uh, as an afterthought. Joseph was a righteous man who obeyed God, who helped to raise the Son of God, who protected him when he needed to be protected, who provided for him when he needed to be provided. And we have reaped the benefits of what Joseph did in his faithfulness. Yeah, Jeffy. Yeah. Because it needed to be clear that Mary and Joseph never slept together. And after Joseph, and after Joseph. After Joseph married Mary, and they were occupied in the same house, and Joseph would say to everybody, well, well look, we, we were living in the same house, but we, we've never done anything. How many people do you think would believe him? <laughs> you see my point. It needed to be obvious. It needed to be clear that Joseph had nothing to do with the birth, the physical birth of Jesus. And that he was God's son. So it had to be clear that Mary was a virgin. And for Joseph to have married Mary completely and finalized that, that would have cast all that in doubt. That's a great question. Exactly. Exactly. So Lazarus dies. Jesus waits three days because the Jews believe the spirit hovered above a dead body for three days. And after that, the body would decompose and the spirit could not go back into it. So Jesus made it clear that that myth that they believed about the spirit hovering over the body could never be employed about the resurrection of Jesus later on. Make sense? Okay. All right, any other questions? I love these if you have questions. It's great. I hope this wasn't too boring for you. For me, I was just really pumped about it because I've never, I've never put all of those dots together, you know, with, with Joseph. So, well, thanks, but praise the Lord for that.